Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. In an email to me on January 3rd, 2020, Chloe Hilliard proclaimed, This is the year of Chloe. And she may well be right. Hilliard already kicked off 2020 by releasing her first stand-up comedy album, Thick Dick Energy, and has followed that up with the publication of her first book, F Your Diet, and other things my thighs tell me from Simon & Schuster. Hilliard, whose TV credits include The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon and Last Comic Standing, tells me about her previous life as a culture and entertainment reporter for Essence, Vibe, and The Source, how she decided to make a break for it as a comedian instead, and why she wanted to write about society's relationship with food and what it means for us. So let's get to it! So, Chloe Hilliard. Yes! Thank you for uh, joining me again in microphones. It's been a while since we've talked in microphones. It has been a long time. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I mean... I should I should know how you're doing because yeah. you, you <laughs> no, planned, not yet, but yeah. But you planned your 2020 to kick off with a bang. With yes, a, I did. A new CD and yes, a new book. I did. Now, last things first. As a journalist, you must know you're tempting karma and fate by by putting words like fuck and dick in the titles of your thing. Let me tell you, I did not know how challenging it will, it will be. I didn't. I didn't know. For for one, one thing that has like kind of like broke my spirit a little bit is that it's hard to pay for ads when you have the F word in your title. Yeah. Because for some reason, Facebook thinks that it's offensive to people, even though I've seen beheadings on Facebook, but you cannot have an ad that says F your diet in it because it may <laughs> offend some people. And I'm like, you know what? I, fine. But also, I think it is a trend in like book titles to have like curse words in it. Right. To also, be yeah, outrageous I, to catch your attention. Yeah. Or? And I also think that we're at a point where we know what the word means and what it doesn't mean. So I don't understand like censorship. So that's been like right. another thing. You're just like, oh, we're adults, but we still can't say this. And then you look at like international shows and they like show boobies and stuff and they're fine. And if Pete <laughs> Davidson can have big dick energy, then Chloe Hilliard. Absolutely. Can certainly have. At least my dick is real. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Whoa. <laughs> well, we have seen that picture <laughs> yeah. of Pete as the Ken doll. Yeah, right. <laughs> there you but go. enough about him. We're not here to talk about that's him. That's right. He's we're a darling. I you. love Pete. So, um, listening to your CD, which is now out everywhere, yes, um, you end with a thank you track, I which do. I hadn't heard in a while. Really? Yeah. It's not a common thing, is it? I don't know. Is it more common now with I the kids? I don't know. I don't know, but I felt like, how could I not? You know, I've been in comedy, this is my 10th year, mm -hmm. and I owe a lot of people gratitude because a lot of people helped me. I started comedy late, I mean, by, I guess, like, whatever standard. I started at 29. Okay. And I already had another career, and I came into this one, and I didn't know anything about, like, the lay of the land. And the people who I'm thinking, I'm, I'm genuinely grateful that they helped me along the way. And they showed me things that I wouldn't have known. Because 
comedy is not like comedy is not like a trade school. You can't like go and get a book and learn how to do everything. There's no like format. There's no blueprint that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. You need to have like real relationships with folks who like guide you along the way. And so I just wanted to say thank you. I thank my family for understanding when I cancel on them in the last minute because I got a gig that pays 20 bucks and a drink ticket. Like, you know, I'm chasing <laughs> my dream. So I want to, you know, give those people their flowers while they can hear it. Uh, speaking of trade school, you do mention on the on the CD or not CD on the album yeah, know, on right? the comedy on recording the compact on disc the audio recorder. recording of your stand-up, <laughs> Uh You do mention that you went to NYU for journalism. Yes. Did was that a plan to go there for like a, as a trade school or what was your yeah my, thinking at that time as like an oh, eighteen-year-old? I, I was all in on journalism. Mm-hmm. I was a hundred percent sold. You couldn't tell me I wasn't going to win a Pulitzer. I was going to be a a world-renowned, respected journalist. Who who breaks stories and like I was like I'm gonna be like Barbara Walters. I want to be an what? investigative. Now yeah. was it Barbara Walters who put that idea in your head? Well, I think or? growing up, I just growing up, you kind of knew. You knew who journalists were. You would mm-hmm. see them on television. We didn't have you know thousands of channels, so you knew who Tom Brokaw was. You knew who Barbara Walters was. You knew who Oprah was. You know, like I just knew who these people were growing up, and I was like, I want to, I want to talk to people and and share people's stories. And I think also that comes into me being like an introverted kid an only child and so I knew ah, that I could child. I could I could I could maneuver behind asking questions as a journalist mm-hmm. instead of like trying to socially be a cool person so it was like I a- have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> as an only child in my 40s I have yeah. no idea what you're yeah. talking about well I'm not only child anymore but I'm my my brother is 15 years younger oh, than wow. me so okay. I so I, I do have an only child mentality because mm-hmm. I was 15 when he was born so I was like already fully baked by that point so when you graduate from NYU with a journalism degree, mm-hmm. what did the world look like for you? Was it was it waiting for Chloe? No, was it-, it wasn't because when I graduated in 2002, it was a recession <laughs> and the media industry was not hiring anybody. Mm. So I didn't get a job. I graduated in May. I wasn't able to get a job until October, which felt like forever, especially like... When you graduate from NYU, everybody's like, oh, the world is your oyster. Everybody's going to want you. You went to NYU, got a degree in journalism, and Mm -hmm. I could not find a job. And I went to a a job fair, and the people were there like, yeah, we're just taking your resumes because we're obligated to do outreach, but we don't have any jobs. Oh, man. And then I got one job. It was an editorial assistant. I was like maybe one of like two positions in the entire company at Hearst Magazines at the time. And I worked there for two years, two and a half years at this magazine that ended up folded. So I was like the third person hired and I was there when it shut down. It was Lifetime. Lifetime Cable Network. Was they put the, out their own magazine. They had a magazine for about okay. two. That's when everybody was doing magazines because people were still buying magazines. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember. I had, before I talked into microphones and was on the internet, I was a newspaper reporter. So yeah. I, I totally get it. Yeah. So... So you stayed with Lifetime until it folded. Mm-hmm. And then where did you go? And then after Lifetime, I went back to the Source magazine. Mm-hmm. I was, well, I was unemployed for um, almost like a year after that because oh, wow. it was like a, another immediate, the, the, dot, the dot com bust happened. The first web 1.0. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. So when everybody was like struggling, trying to figure out like how to build websites and get around and all that stuff. 
it was just nuts. So I just was unemployed and I was doing freelance like book editing at the time. And I had interned at the Source Magazine when I was in college at NYU. And one of the guys who I shared like my intern desk was, he was a freelancer, but he ended up becoming the editor in chief. And he called me and was like, hey, do you want a job? And I was like, uh, hell yeah, I want a job. And so I went to work at Source Magazine. So to go from Corporate America, White Women's Magazine to like a, like the, the premier hip hop publication at the time was like night and day. And I was there for about like two and a half years as well. Now, did you get to write for them or was it I wrote editing? for them. Yeah, okay. I wrote. I mean, it was like you did everything because, you know, when I was an intern there, it was a massive publication. It was like 380 pages every every month. It was like you say the source and all the doors open for you. And I was an intern. I felt like I felt like um, what's the almost famous? You remember the guy yeah, in almost yeah. famous? I felt like that. Like I was there and I'm seeing all these rappers and all these people, all these experiences. So I was excited. And then when I went back a couple years later, it was not like that. <laughs> it was now maybe like 190 pages a month. It was like a bare bone staff. You know, there was a lot of like mismanagement that happened. So now we were like, you know, we're gonna bring it back to what it used to be. So I did everything. I wrote. I copy edited. I you know, picked out photos. I helped with layout. Like it was just like everybody was very like all hands on deck because it was a different like different turnaround. Did you have any kind of almost famous stories or moments when you were working there? Well, when I was working there, I took myself very very seriously. So I wouldn't like allow myself to like party and hang out, but I would like see it from afar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, it was really crazy because at the time, the owner of the source, Dave Mays. He had a beef with Eminem, so everybody hated us. <laughs> and it was like I just so you were the enemy. It. Yeah, I was the enemy. Like people hated hated us, and so it was a lot of beef. It was a lot of like rap battles and stuff going on. So I just wouldn't even say I really worked because I was like I don't know who. Also, like when I was like dating at the time, I would tell people that because as soon as you say I work at the store, someone uh-huh. was like, "Oh, I listen to my music," and I'm like, "Oh, damn, I don't want to listen to your music. I just want to go on this date." So, yeah, it was a very, like, split life type of thing. Okay. Yeah. What was your last journalism job? My last journalism job, I would say my last full-time journalism job, I was a managing editor at Vibe Magazine. Okay. And then I left there and went to a startup website, which was run by a guy who was, like, a money guy. and He didn't really know media, and so that did not go well at all because he, he implemented, like, like, procedures that didn't make sense. So, like, you had to, like like email like it was just, it was like a, like an email a lot of chains like he was like reading uh, everybody's email like he was like micromanaging and it yeah. just didn't work out so that was like my last last job but I would say my last like actual media job was like I was a managing editor and at how old magazine. were you then? Uh, I was like 27, 28 okay. yeah so there wasn't a real overlap of your no, journalism and your comedy I, life it was maybe an overlap of maybe about like maybe about like eight or nine months mm-hmm. yeah and I also wasn't comfortable telling people in media that I was getting into comedy you know because <laughs> it felt like it felt dumb it felt really dumb it felt like here I have a successful career as a respected journalist yeah. and now I'm gonna go tell Joe it just felt and I was like I felt old you're, at the you're time you're right by the way I, know, right? I don't know why I'm cupping <laughs> my hand you're right it does feel dumb it does, and, but I was also like I was I felt old you know like in comedy years 29 is mm-hmm. old to be starting so it was like getting my bearings and starting all over in a world that I didn't know and so it just felt really 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 stupid to say I'm a comedian you know so I didn't tell anybody I was a comedian they came to my graduation show because it was like a novelty like oh let's go see what this thing mm-hmm. is she's doing 
And then at the end of it, they were like, oh, no, you should keep doing this. And I was like, really? Yeah. And they were like, yeah. So you went to a class. I took a class. Where did you decide to go? I did I did Andy Engel's Manhattan okay. School of Comedy. Okay. Yes. Was that at Gotham at the time? or where It was, was at Comics. At? At com- oh, yes. Comics with an X. Yeah. Comics with an X. It was there. Comics. I know, right? It was yes. a good club. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I was there, and mm-hmm. I... I studied his at his school uh-huh. my teacher was Corey Kahaney okay and when we started I think it's like six OG classes yeah OG last like on every like Nate talk show she's been on every yeah. like multiple times and so it was probably like a class of like 30 kids well mm-hmm. I say kids it's, it was grown adults but like, whenever you hear class you hear kids but in my mind um but it was how, like how grown- many of the people in there do you think actually wanted to be comedians I would say out of that 30 I think maybe five or six really wanted to be comedians mm-hmm. And How most many of them still are. Ma- one, Molly Austin. Oh, yeah, she and, and I took that too. class together. Yeah, nice. I don't know nobody else really from that class. I, I may see uh, one person every once in a while, but now it's been t- like right, four years. years. Four yeah. years in, like you would still see people trying to go up, but mm-hmm. like now it's ten years in, like nobody's still trying to get up at a mic. <laughs> but most of the people there were really just like bored, and they just wanted to master like public speaking they wanted to get out of like their their shyness and Mm -hmm. so i remember her Corey kahaney saying like first class she was like most of you are not gonna be funny and that's fine but you know i'll help you i'll teach you how to write a joke and we'll see what happens and i was like okay and then she told me maybe like two three classes and she was like no you really have something and that's so interesting to hear somebody say that because you have to i mean i believed her because she is a pro right but i'm also like well maybe i should take this a little bit more seriously because i didn't really think that i would it, it did it didn't even make sense how you can make a career talk talking into a microphone <laughs> it is it is it blew my mind it like there was no like i mean there is a skill to it like once you get into right. it you realize it's a skill to it but just like from the outside looking in you just like you just show up and you talk it's for just, 10 it's minutes freestyle rapping is all it is it is <laughs> It is. It's freestyle rapping when they write their rounds before the freestyle and you don't know that they wrote it. <laughs> right. That's the that's the magic act. Hey, oh, sorry, just saying hi to Roy Wood Jr. Oh, Roy Wood hi, Jr. Roy. <laughs> he is the source. Yeah, right? <laughs> of, of all comedy knowledge. Yes. Um, we're at the cellar. I don't know if we, we didn't say that. So if oh, you no. like. We're, yeah, we're at the comedy cellar. We're at the comedy cellar. So people may be coming in for uh, for brunch. So we'll just be yes. saying hi. Um <laughs> How long? How long did it take after that graduation before you decided to start actually doing something? Well, I would do. I would do bring a shows because that was like a safety net to to know that you can perform in a club on a mm-hmm. bring a show. You invite a couple people, and then once I started to exhaust that, like my friends and family, like we've seen these jokes already. <laughs> um, I started just doing some like small bar shows around mm-hmm. the way. So I would say probably about, I want to say seven or nine months. I remember I did a. a a show which was at Gotham because by this point Manhattan School of Comedy moved to Gotham Comedy Club and Steve Mazzelli the owner Mm -hmm. one of the owners he was going to watch the class I mean watch the show and give notes and I was like oh this is perfect because you know I'm coming from a world of like reviews and like you know HR and like what's my assessment like I I like to be assessed it's very like I need to know where I can how can I improve you know and so the end of the class he took really he took real notes and you each each went in one by one into the green room and sat with him and he went through our set and it was really great to have feedback from someone who'd never seen me before who's a professional he owns this club so I know he knows what comedy is right and I asked him if I could audio tape it. I have it, so I got to find it. 
and he goes, well, you're great. Your presence is great. Your jokes are great. Like, I would like to know a little bit more about X, Y, and Z, but, like, this was a really solid set. How long have you been doing it? I go, um, nine months. He goes, what? He goes, wait, did you say nine months? I was like, yeah, nine months. He was like, oh, no, you have to, you need to come here all the time. Like, I need you. I want you working at my club, and then that's how I kind of got in a Gotham, and I was just, like, hosting shows at, like, 10, 11 months. And, nice. Yeah. What was kind of the aha moment for you where you realized comedy was giving you something that journalism couldn't? I would say once I started doing colleges, about three years in, okay. once I started doing colleges and traveling the country and making really like making good money, I realized wow, I'm not as stressed out as I used to be. I'm not working 10, 12 hours a day. I'm not, like, going blind looking at a computer screen. I get to meet and interact with people the same way I hope that my writing interacted with people, but I get to see it in person. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can... I, it, comedy at that point, when I had that realization, comedy no longer felt like like a cheap trick. It felt like something that I could still do to, like, improve my life and other people's lives like even if it's for a minute like so you you buy into the whole idea of like being an entertainer like whenever you hear movie stars talk and be like yes I make tens of millions of dollars a movie but I also make people happy and you're gonna be like bullshit and then when somebody's sad and depressed or you're at home alone and you start watching a movie you're like I do feel bad I do feel- thank you Will Smith you earned this 10 million dollars that's how you just buy into it like okay I am doing something and now Will Smith's hanging out with comedians. He is hanging and trying to do stand-up. Well, not, not really. I think it was just like a gag. So yeah. I think he knows his limits. <laughs> so I guess the um, not million-dollar question, but, but it does have to do with money, is so you say your aha moment came three years in when you were doing colleges and started making money. How did you get through those first three years where yeah. there are no aha moments. There were none. I was you, yeah. I was on unemployment. Mm-hmm. I had unemployment. I mean, and my life drastically changed. Like once I was once I left that job, the last job with the website, I had my own apartment. I was on unemployment. I was like, I was reusing toilet, not toilet paper, reusing the paper towel. Like you know okay. how you wash your hand with paper towel, and yeah. I would just like let it air dry and then use it again. And be like it's not dirty. Like you know, uh-huh. I didn't have cable. I had like one piece of furniture in my living room. It was like bare bone, like bare bones. And then I just said, well, I want to pursue this thing, so I just freelance, you know, because I still could edit and I would mm-hmm. build websites. So I would have clients. I'd build a website here and, you know, consult on this project here and there. And then when it like push came to shove and I was like, I really got to do this, I got a roommate. I got a roommate, which is like a hard pill to swallow, like when you consider yourself to be a grown adult and you're just like, I need somebody mm-hmm. to help me pay my rent. And so Monroe Martin moved in with me. And we were roommates for four and a half years. And where was Monroe at with his comedy career? He well, he he started before me. So yeah, if so I'm so he's probably like four, maybe like three or four years ahead of me. Mm-hmm. And so he was just you know miking it and still still we both were still going to open mics and doing bar shows. We weren't really in at any of the clubs at that point. But what changed was we got we connected and he moved in with me. And then I want to say maybe 
a, like six months to a year after that, we got Last Comic Standing. Uh, and so then we were both on Last Comic Standing together. And that yeah. kind of just helped, like, give us more visibility. And from Last Comic Standing, he made it to, like, the top ten. Yeah, yeah. So that just kind of changed our lives in different ways. I was able to use that to help with, like, college gigs and, like, get more money for my, my tour stops. And he was, like performing all over the, over the country so we were working comedians at that point last comic standing allowed us to become working comedians where all of our money that we paid all our bills with came from stand-up comedy. so we're just talking about now about the the finances of it and you know having to to bite that bullet and get a roommate mm-hmm. but by getting a roommate who's a comedian how much psychologically did that help yeah. Not just knowing that someone was going to help pay the bills, but that they were in the struggle oh, with you. Yeah, it helps so much. I haven't been in a relationship since I first really got serious about stand-up comedy. Like, I had a boyfriend mm-hmm. when I took the class. He actually paid for the class. Shout out to him. <laughs> um, I did stuff for him, too. Don't think it was, like, one-sided. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so he paid for the class, and I took the class, and I did the graduate show. And so, like, we ended up breaking up, like, about a year and a half into comedy, not mm-hmm. because of comedy. But then I made a decision at the point. It's like, no one's really going to understand what I'm going through because I don't even understand what I'm going through right now. And it's, like, hard to tell my family who, I, you know, who mm-hmm. saw me go to college, and they're so proud of me, and I had this career, and I'm telling you, like, they could, I just can't even explain it. It's like one of those things where I just have to do it and you just have to see. And so having a roommate who's a comedian, it just made it so much easier to have someone to talk to because I couldn't talk to friends about it. I couldn't. I mean, it, it felt like, you know, when you're a secret ops, it's like no one could know what I'm doing. Nobody understands. Something about that, I, I completely identify, but at the same time, knowing that you're a native New Yorker, somehow that seems weirder to me that. New Yorkers should know that comedy is a thing. No, I don't think so. I think they know. I think I mean, no. everybody knows now that comedians are because everybody's calling themselves comedians. Well, also because now you're talking more about big deals. Comedian. No, but big, oh. big, big money deals. Mm-hmm. Now, now Dave Chappelle, what he makes at Netflix is in the news. It's yeah. like on the 11 o'clock news. And my grandmother's like, he's making how much money? You making money like that, Chloe? No, I'm not, Grandma. But back then, this is 10 years ago, right. nobody was thinking about comics as like reputable money-making machines unless they were also in movies. So now you can just look at a comedian who doesn't do movies and say, oh, they make money just from the road. And it's in trades. It's in all of the, you know, Forbes list money. Like, people know now that it makes a lot of money. But back then, they were like, are you going to be on Def Comedy Jam? Like, that's the idea of, like, what comedy was on television, at least. Right. Well, so do was doing Last Comic then a big deal? Yeah, for, it was. For a, the it was a, household? Yes, they taped it. They watched it. They told mm-hmm. everybody about it. It kind of legitimized my decision three years prior to not get another job. They felt okay with me being on TV. Me being on TV made up for the fact that I was mm-hmm. air drying my paper towels. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward to, I guess, maybe a couple years ago? Or where, when did the book idea yeah. first the book Start came about. Formulate. Yeah, the book came about about three, three or four years ago. Okay, I was in a book. There's a magazine called Brooklyn Magazine, and they mm-hmm. did this like very controversial list called the top fifty funniest people in Brooklyn. Oh, I remember that. Even though yeah, some yeah. of the people did live in Brooklyn, right? Um, <laughs> and some of the people weren't like really comedians. Yeah, it was just like like we think you're funny. We <laughs> yeah. don't. It, you I don't amuse even, us. I never even heard of the magazine before. We want to be your friends. Yeah, but they asked me to do it, and I was like, okay. I mean, uh-huh. I'll just stop by and get my picture taken. And I'm like, I am from Brooklyn, so I, I guess I meet you that, count. right? Yeah, yeah. And so I did it, and from that, it created a lot of buzz, like a lot of controversy, because like you said, people weren't comedians, mm-hmm. and they didn't live in Brooklyn. And a book 
agent contacted me and was like, "Hey, I saw you in this magazine. Do you would you like to talk about book ideas?" And I was like, "Of course!" Like as a journalist, I'm like, "I've always I've always knew I needed to write a book, mm-hmm. especially when you're a journalist. You're like, I need to write a book. So when I go on these shows, I it says like under my name, author of, and it gives me some validity about whatever I'm talking about. Right. So I was like, "Of course, I know I need to write a book." And then I had to start thinking about what kind of book I wanted it to be. And we had lunch and we discussed it. And during that first lunch, he said to me, "Oh, you know." diet books sell the most and I go oh well then I should just call my book fuck your diet and he goes yeah and I go oh (laughs) and that was it I had the title before I had the book and so it was just a matter of like figuring out what did that mean to me what did what does fuck your diet mean Mm -hmm. to me and to me as someone who's been six months since I was 12 and always dealt with like weight issues and being bigger just like physically bigger than everybody I just always had an interesting relationship with like body identity and like weight and food and so I wanted to address those things but I also knew that I wanted it to be funny so people can like digest it but I also needed to include like facts and figures because I want people to be informed and so I just went on this quest and I, I hired an amazing researcher shout out to Monica to help me get like facts and figures so that I know what I'm talking about because I don't want to give misinformation and I think it was important for me to mix both like my comedic energy and my journalism energy because I didn't want it to just be like a funny but like baseless voyeuristic look at all of my follies I wanted it to have some substance to it something that I could look back 20 years from now and be like I'm glad that I did that not right. I'm embarrassed by all of the stuff I like threw up on a page so it was very important to me to do to mix that. And so the book came about and it comes out, you know, January 7th. We're here. We're excited. And I can't wait to see how people receive it. So I feel like I'm starting all over again. I feel like just, just I feel like saying I'm an author is like me saying I'm a comedian 10 years ago. It's like uncharted territory. I don't know what's going to happen. But it doesn't feel dumb, does it? No, it doesn't feel <laughs> dumb. It doesn't feel dumb at all. That's that's a good feeling. It doesn't feel dumb, but it, it does feel it does feel very vulnerable to because I'm writing about my life, you know, and so I'm ex- excited to see how people receive it or if they, you know, if they hate me. I don't know. Um, what do you... Th- Let me think about how to phrase this. Um, having the book come out now in 2020 versus three or four years earlier when you first yeah. sold the idea to the agent... Do you feel like society is like in an even better place to receive oh, your message now than it would have been absolutely, then? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we've seen so much happen in social media when it comes to body positivity, for sure. I think people are having a conversation and understanding that just because someone doesn't fit your perfect size six doesn't mean right. that they're less of a person or that they're dumb. Like, I think a lot of the negative stereotypes surrounding like having a larger body is kind of being like thrown out the window because we see women who are intelligent, who are smart, who are right. funny, who have a stomach, who have thighs that touch. Like, it's not about like being perfect anymore. And I think social media has kind of like leveled the playing field because now you're able to turn the camera on yourself and yeah. put it out in the world and people love it like people love to see real bodies yeah. and in addition to that I think also the conversation we need to have is just about like the food industry and you know you see documentaries pop up every couple years about like don't eat this meat is bad be a vegan try this keto so people are always consciously trying to find like a right answer and I, I hope that what people take away from my book is like there is no right answer it's just you need to know what works best for you like there is no one all answer for everybody because everybody's individual body chemistry is different and then also what you have access to is different like the biggest thing about like my research is like I knew I grew up 
I didn't know what it was called, but I knew that I grew up in a food desert, meaning that my family has to travel more than like a mile and a half to a supermarket. Oh, right. And there's a lot of people who live in America, even though we're a first world country, who have to travel to get to a nice supermarket. And so that is a big factor in like how you eat. And then like disposable income. Do you have money for organic or not? Like, are right. you going to buy a pre-processed meal or are you going to buy like a five-star Michelin? Hey, like, McDonald's around the corner from here, two for six. Two for six. Like, yeah. And then you go to, like, a Whole Foods, <laughs> and what can you get for $6 in Whole Foods? A cart. You get the cart. You get to push the cart around. Right. So if you're poor, <laughs> you go t- yes. to the and fast food, and the fast food makes you unhealthy. Yeah. It makes you unhealthy, and it also changes your body chemistry, and it yeah. changes your brain chemistry as well. Because people don't, you know, sugar is a drug. You get addicted to sugar. Kids eat sugar. It just creates a whole host of, like, long-lasting health problems that we don't really realize. Because if you realize that, then the people would make sure that the food industry doesn't do the crappy stuff that they do. So it's like, well, don't we, we won't really tell them the research behind what they're eating because then they won't want to eat it and we won't be able to make millions of dollars or billions of dollars a year. So it's like we're a part of this cycle and it's like, yeah, we're being experimented on like guinea pigs because these corporations want to make money. So then if that's the case and that's the reality, then you can't call a fat person fat and lazy because they're being fed stuff that comes from above them. It's like it's a whole chain of economics that's working around us. And it's really it's really uh, disrespectful and lazy to call someone who's fat like a victim of their own circumstances. Yeah. It's like I have no control over most of the things that's happening around me. So how do you other than writing a book yes. about it? Is it e- is it more effective? Do you think through good journalism or through good comedy to get people to understand what's going on? Yeah, I would say through good comedy at this point because you know a lot of our audiences have been tainted against journalism. Yeah. And, you know, let me tell you something. Journalism is a really hard job. People, journalists have put their lives on the line for freedom of speech and for freedom of information. So there's a lot that goes into the media that I just you know I think is really distasteful. How people want to be like fake news. Like I just. I, part of me still wishes I was a journalist, especially like during all of these trying political times. But I also know that like my quality of life would be much worse. And I don't even mean like financially. I just mean like psychologically and physically. Like I would be, probably be like hunched over with a hump on my back because I'm just like typing away trying to like get these deadlines out. But I do think that comedically you can make a, as great of an impact as a well-written investigated article if you if you have like good like sources and Mm -hmm. facts and figures there's ways things that i've said on stage and people like what i didn't know that and they you can hear them like talking about it a little bit and they're like i didn't know that information it's like good i'm glad i can leave you with a little nugget so would you uh indulge me and leave leave us with a little nugget about words of advice you might have for journalists writing about comedians oh oh, okay yes okay (laughs) Okay, so not just me specifically, but in general. <laughs> and as you take notes. I'm not looking for my specific <laughs> assessment. Well, I think that for the general audience. I think that the general audience and, and journalists alike mm-hmm. who who listen to your amazing podcast and 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 creep on your webpage because <laughs> I know they do. Um, they should be aware that each comedian is an independent contractor. And when they go on stage, they only represent themselves. 
And so if you have an issue with one comedian, it's not fair to the industry to paint it as an issue indicative of the entire comedy community. So that's number one. I think also you need to attend a comedy show as a civilian and not as a critic to really get a feel of it. Mm -hmm. Because if you go into it with your own like preconceived notions, you're going to go out with whatever agenda that you went in with. And I think a lot of times, even myself as a comedian, sometimes it's nice to just like turn off that part of my brain as a critical thinker and just go and enjoy a show. And then I'll end up realizing, okay, I may not find this person funny or this joke funny, but the rest of the audience thinks it's funny so maybe it's just not my cup of tea mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with just saying I don't get it I don't like it but I respect it and I think that's the thing that we're missing when you when you want to be a journalist you want to be a critical thinker and you want to take down a hot topic or a person and like you know stick your sword in it like King Arthur and it's just like <laughs> it, that's not needed just say you didn't like it you don't have to write about it just say you didn't like it and go about your business thanks Chloe you're welcome I really appreciate it Oh. Here's here's to uh, an even more successful 2020 yes, for you. I appreciate it. I'm starting with a bang. You got my book, F Your Diet, and you got my album, Big Dick Energy. So Go check it out. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.